Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 242 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is SOT Saved Me, an interview with Kelsey Watkins. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So if you've tried a wide variety of treatments and haven't had the results you've wanted, or you're just curious about SOT therapy, how it pertains to tick-borne illness, what it is, how it works, and how it can help you, then this is the podcast episode for you. Kelsey Watkins talks to us in great detail about many of her treatment protocols, how they either helped her or didn't help her, and ultimately how she landed on SOT therapy and how it was a game changer in her healing journey. Without further ado, Kelsey Watkins in SOT Saved Me. Hey, Kelsey Watkins, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. And we're really excited to have you as well, but I don't think it would be proper to start this podcast without a shout out because one of our favorite people in the whole world, one of the people who've interviewed us on her podcast, one of the people that came to our community and and taught uh, Lyme disease awareness to the young people in our community is someone that you're close with. So talk about that. Who is is that person that I'm referring to? Uh, My good friend, Cassidy Colbert. So Cassidy Colbert, who is a wonderful young woman from, from Maryland, um, is uh, somebody that we just absolutely adore and is doing great work in the community. And, uh, and uh, I think we're going to start to talk a little bit about what she sort of represents, which is, you know, someone who went through a really difficult journey herself and now wants to try to lead other people to shortcutting their journey. And that's exactly what you're doing, right? You're taking time away from your, your life, your two young children, your husband, and you're now looking to help other people by vulnerably sharing your story. So I want to thank you for sort of paying it forward and and helping out others in the community the same way that Cassidy did for you. Yeah, no problem. I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, thank you. So why don't you talk a little bit more about where you're from? We did introduce you as a gal from Maryland. So talk to us about what it's like to live in Maryland. Um, Maryland is home to me. I've really never wanted to leave. Um, I grew up in a small rural town called Damascus, Maryland. Um, And then later on in my life, met my husband and he's from Myersville, Maryland, which is another small rural town, about 45 minutes away from Damascus. So that's where we currently reside and where we decided to land and raise our family. Let's talk about your family so we can sort of build out that context. Uh, I understand you're a mom. How many children do you have and how old are they? I have two children, a boy and a girl. Um, one, my girl is seven years old and my boy is two and a half. So you're a very busy mom. Yes. And I think that's going to be an important environment for us to talk about this journey and and how you've journeyed through Lyme disease as a mom. Let's walk all the way back to your childhood. Talk to us about what it was like to grow up in this rural community. What was your educational system like? What was your social environment like? And what kinds of things were you doing to prepare yourself for your adult life? Um, As a young child, I didn't have a huge social life because I was actually a very competitive gymnast from four years old until I was about 14 or 15. So a lot of my time was spent in the gym training before and after school. Um, I I had an abbreviated schedule at school to accommodate my training schedule. So a lot of my social life was my friends in the gym. Okay, so you were were a competitive athlete and you spent all of your energy and all of your time during that window of your life, getting yourself ready to be um, a star athlete, correct? Yes. And you learned during the course of that process, a number of different things. You learned how to eat properly. You learned how to exercise properly. You learned how to protect your body from the various dangers associated with being a competitive gymnast, which is a very dangerous sport. Definitely. And lots of discipline 
So let's talk about a little bit about, um, you know, the types of things you were learning to keep yourself safe in that dangerous environment. What kinds of things were your coaches and your parents and other people who are mentoring you through that, that competitive gymnast process, teaching you to keep yourself safe? Um, really the biggest thing is mindset. I mean, I think a lot of people saw with the Olympics, um, with Simone Biles, you know, her just not being in the right mindset that can really cause some severe injury. Um, so mindset is really an important thing when it comes to gymnastics, along with um, the strength and flexibility and proper technique. So let, let's build that out a little bit. So you learned at a very young age that if you didn't believe that you could do something, you couldn't, right? So right. if you believe you could do something or you believe you can't do something, as Henry Ford said, you're right either way, correct? Exactly. So even though you were a competitive athlete and you were doing everything to get your body ready to perform at a high level in a physical sport, if you didn't have the proper mindset and you didn't know how to control your mind, you would not be able to succeed as a competitive gymnast. 100%. So now talk to us about uh, whether or not you did any outdoors training. Were you running? Were you, were you doing anything outdoors in this rural community that you were growing up in? I really did not do a lot of training outdoors. A lot of my training was inside. Um, but, you know, as a young kid, I would run around in my backyard when I wasn't at the gym. Um, I do have some memories of going camping a few times. But, I mean, like I said, a lot of my times was spent indoors in the gym um, or traveling to go to competitions. So your parents were, were helping you to be very focused. You were a very focused young person and you had a very, very... Um, you know, carefully constructed childhood where you were developing yourself into this, into this hopefully professional athlete. Right. Now, uh, did your parents, when they were either letting you go outdoors or taking you camping, take any steps to help you to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks or tick diseases? Not that I can remember. No. Do you recall knowing anything about ticks or tick diseases during your childhood? I did know about ticks. Um, I didn't really understand the severity of what they could do to you. Um, and I didn't really understand the true importance of doing tick checks. What about, what about Lyme disease? Did you know anyone with, with Lyme disease? Had you ever heard about Lyme disease during, during the course of your childhood? When I was young, no. Um, probably, I had probably heard of Lyme disease once I hit like middle school, high school. Okay. And, and tell us what you learned about Lyme disease when you either hit middle school or, or high school. Not a whole lot. I mean, I knew that if you got Lyme disease, um, you'd typically get a bullseye rash and you take on antibiotics and that's it. It would go away. Yeah. All right. So you learned about acute Lyme disease, although you didn't know that term at that time. And I wish you probably wish you don't know what that term is now, but right. so you, you, you heard about ticks and you knew that they could be dangerous. Uh, you knew generally about this disease called Lyme disease, but it really wasn't that big a deal because you take a couple of pills and you get better. Exactly. I think we grow up, you know, in such a Western society where it's like you get sick, you take a medicine, you get better. And that's just conditioned into our brains. And that's what I thought Lyme disease was. You know, you get the standard symptom, you go to your doctor, you get an antibiotic and that's it. You're good to go. Okay. So you had awareness, right? But you didn't yeah. have enough awareness that it would lead you to believe that you should take steps to protect yourself. And clearly your family had had awareness, 
but they didn't believe that it was that it was a dangerous activity or event or or exposure that you should be protecting yourself from. So you were never taught about how to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks and what you should do if you did in fact come in fact uh, you did in fact come in contact with the tick. Right. Now, did you have any companion animals during your childhood? And if you did, did you ever find uh, any ticks on them? I had a cat growing up. I wanted a dog so bad, but my parents wouldn't let me have one. Um, but she was strictly indoor. So no, I mean, we never found any ticks on her. Okay, so talk to us about now how your how your childhood developed and what your goals were. So you were this very competitive athlete. You were focused on, on gymnastics. What kinds of things were you doing and where were you hoping that was going to take you? Um, my main goal with the gymnastics was to get a college scholarship and compete in college. Um, I really wasn't striving for the Olympics. Um, my, my main goal was to get a scholarship and go to college and compete. Okay, and, and did you ultimately... Uh, develop your gymnastics so that it would take you to college or did you take a different path? Um, I actually wound up getting injured and I wasn't really able to come back from it. And at that time that I got injured, I was entering into high school. And like I said, with the gymnastics, I didn't have much of a social life. So entering into high school, I was like, injury, not really competing. I kind of want a social life now. Um, and how did that develop for you? How, how were you able to develop your social life after you now had sort of this broader experience rather than this very focused and limited experience you had up until that point? It was weird. It was definitely a big transition um, to go, you know, going from being in the gym all the time, literally before and after school and having no free time to spend with my friends hardly to having all the time in the world. It was like, I didn't really know what to do with myself. It was kind of overwhelming. And how did you use the skill set that you had developed as a gymnast to help you through these now social challenges that you are facing as uh, as a high school student? I mean, I didn't really develop a lot of social aspects. I mean, I really, I honestly felt kind of socially awkward around people for a long time. I and how did you overcome that? I mean, did you did you use now this mindset that you had learned as a gymnast that you needed to be successful? You had to believe. Did you use any of these mindset tools to help you to ultimately develop some friendships and have a social circle that you never had before? Yeah, I think, you know, in the gymnastics world, you're really taught to kind of overcome your thoughts mentally and sometimes suppress them. Um <laughs> So I think a lot of it was I kind of just had to suppress my anxiety when it came to social situations and just act normal, like everything was fine. So when did you first start to feel the symptoms of what you now know to be um, Lyme disease? So I actually started having some weird symptoms um, probably eight, almost nine years ago now, um, before I started having kids. Um, actually when me and my husband first started dating, I started experiencing fainting spells and I would faint between five to 10 times a day. Um, so it was pretty concerning. And, um, I went to my primary care doctor, like any normal person would do. And I do recall them testing me for Lyme disease then. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So you were on 18 or 19 years old at that time? Uh, yes, 19. 
you had you had just uh, recently graduated from high school, and what were you doing professionally at that at that time? Um, I was actually waitressing at that time. So you, you were this very athletic person, although you had suffered an injury that took you out of competitive gymnastics, you were still a fit and athletic young person. Yes. You were working you were working at a very rigorous job um, as, a, as a waitress in, 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 the, um, in, in the restaurant world and mm-hmm. everything was going fine, right? Young, healthy, former competitive athlete. And now you start to get sick. Talk to us about what the symptoms were. Um, so I would get heart palpitations when I would go from sitting to standing, um, and I would pass out or get really dizzy or feel like I was going to pass out. Now, did you have anything leading up to that, that you could relate to? Meaning, did you ever pass out when you were a gymnast? Did you ever pass out after you left the gymnastics community and you were going to high school or was this just something that came on immediately? No, it just came on pretty abruptly. Okay. So um, you, you said you went to your doctor and your doctor um, did test you for a number of different things and, and, yeah. and also brought up Lyme disease, correct? Yes. Now, did that doctor give you a test for Lyme disease? Yeah, I believe he did the ELISA test. Okay, and what were the results? Negative. Now, when the doctor gave you the test and, then, and, the, and the ELISA came back negative, did the doctor say to you, hey, there are other testing options that we should explore. The doctors say, hey, you know, this test is unreliable and it's just as likely to give you a false negative as a false positive. Did he say, hey, I really should be giving you a clinical diagnosis or perhaps did he say, perhaps we should send you to a specialist to see if this is something that we should explore in more detail? No, he never really elaborated on the Lyme disease, um, but he did send me to a cardiologist. Okay. So not a Lyme literate medical doctor, but a cardiologist. Right. Okay. So how did that go? What what were the what were the interactions with the cardiologist like? Um, my cardiologist is really great, actually. I mean, he's not Lyme literate, but he does acknowledge that Lyme exists. But again, at that time, it really wasn't on anyone's radar because I had had a negative test. So my cardiologist did um, like an EKG, an echo a tilt table test um, where they ultimately diagnosed me with POTS. Okay. So now when you got the POTS diagnosis, um, did that trigger you to do any research about POTS and to see if there was any connection between this suspicion that perhaps you had Lyme disease you had been tested for and now this, uh, this diagnosis of POTS? No, it did not. And, you know, when my diag or when my cardiologist diagnosed me, he said, you know, this is pretty, normal for women your age, you know, going into their twenties, early twenties, you'll, it's very likely that you'll grow out of it. You know, once you get to your upper twenties into your thirties. All right. So now let's build out what was happening in, in your larger life, right? You're, you're now interacting with these doctors and they're, and they're trying to help you to discover what is causing you to have these fainting spells. Um, how is this impacting this new relationship that you started with the man who you're now married to? Um, it was difficult. I think a lot of the times he thought that I was kind of crazy. Um, but he was definitely concerned. I mean, there was concern there. I mean, he was constantly worrying that I was going to hit my head on something while, you know, when I passed out, he was always worried when it happened and would help me, um, you know, get back up and kind of gain consciousness. Um, so yeah, it was really, 
a weird time to be going through health issues, going into a new relationship. So give us more detail about what it was like. Like, Give me an example of one time where you had this fainting spell from what you had been diagnosed with, with the, with the POTS, uh, you know, like, just, you know, walk us through it. What, what was it like? Um, one time I can remember specifically, that's kind of like a core memory is um, I got, I was still living with my parents at the time and I had gotten home, pulled in the driveway, gotten out of my car and passed out in the driveway. Okay. But and what happened? So, you, so give us, give us, give us step by step. You open the door, you walk out of the car and you just hit the ground. Yeah, pretty much. Like the second I, I went from sitting to standing, just passed out. And, and what did it feel like while you were like falling? Did you like, did you lose consciousness and just have no memory of the fall to the yeah, ground? I have or? no memory. I, I black out pretty much the second that I stand up. I can usually remember why I was getting up or what I was going to do. Um, but yeah, the second I stand up, I, I black out. So it's almost like a computer just being shut off. And you go down and you have no recollection of anything other than where you were coming from. And then you find yourself on the ground. Right. So now, did you have any concerns about driving or being in, you know, being in, you know, a dangerous instrument where you might just faint and find yourself or someone else in a really difficult spot because uh, you fainted while driving? Yes. Once it started happening pretty consistently, um, I made the decision to stop driving. And between my parents and, um, you know, my boyfriend, now husband, they would drive me to school, to work, you know, and anywhere I needed to go for probably a good six months. So now talk to us about how this is affecting your job. You're working as a waitress at the time, and that's a rigorous job. We know that's yeah. a rigorous job. Uh, uh, how, how were these fainting spells um, impacting your ability to work? And was there ever a time where you were walking with a tray and you found yourself you know, on the ground? Thankfully, no, that was my biggest fear. Um, because, you know, the biggest issue for me was from going sitting to standing or laying down in bed to standing up. So, you know, when I was at work, I was on my feet, you know, for 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. So, um, there were definitely times where I felt a little dizzy and I would catch it and I would just kind of sit down, eat some salt, drink some water. Um, but yeah, thankfully I don't, I did not pass out at work. So how did, how did these, these, uh, these challenges with the then post diagnosis develop? I mean, how often were you fainting and what were you then doing? Were you going to other doctors to try to um, get a resolution that you weren't able to get first from your primary care physician and then from your cardiologist? No, I think I was very, you know, just young and naive and again, stuck in that kind of Western way of thinking like, oh, this is what my doctor's telling me is wrong. I just need to listen to what he says and it's going to be okay. Um, I really wasn't looking deeper into why this could be happening at the time. So how, but Kelsey, how long did this go on before you finally got your Lyme disease diagnosis? Um, on and off for about eight years. So you were, you were treating with a group of doctors um, who were telling you you were going to be okay, but you weren't okay. You were, you were literally fainting and hitting the ground. Um, yeah. And although they were telling you you were going to be okay, you weren't okay. So you know, did that trigger you to challenge your doctors and say, what's going on here? I'm not getting any better. 
Unfortunately not. You know, I think with my gymnastics mindset of like no pain, no gain, push through it, push through the pain, push through whatever's happening, kind of held me back from doing that in all honesty. So let's talk about that, right? Because there are some cultural, there is some cultural baggage that we bring with us to these challenges. Like you've already identified one, which is we sort of culturally believe that we'll go to a doctor, they'll give us a pill, we'll get better, right? And right. we are going to just now rely on them to, to get us better. But th there are other cultural challenges that we sometimes, or cultural uh, pieces of baggage we bring with us. And one of those pieces of cultural baggage is suck it up, right? Yep. Tough it out. You're going to be okay. Stop being, stop being a, a whiner kind of thing. And because you came from this competitive gymnastics world, you had that in spades, right? You were, you were an uber suck it up kind of kid, right? Oh, yeah. So talk to us about how that impacted your ability to heal. It impacted it a lot. Um, you know, I really, you know, just had this no pain, no gain mindset and ignored a lot of the red flags. Um, yeah. So Kelsey, you know, generally in my view, no pain, no gain is sort of, you know, again, and I think it, I think it does serve you well in a competitive athletic environment where you have to work hard. You have to, you know, you have to tear your muscles. You have to rebuild your muscles. You have to, you know, you, that, that makes sense. But the problem is you were in a lot of pain without any goal towards gaining gain. So, you know, that, that whole challenge where like, if they said to you, look, Kelsey, we want you to take this medication. And if you, you take this medication and you're sick for about six weeks, you're going to get better. Or you're going to do a particular exercise every single morning and you take time out and then you're going to get better. That's the pain versus gain, I think, right. connection. But you were just sick. Yeah. Where was the gain? You know, you know, at the time, as crazy as it sounds, I didn't really think of myself as being sick. I thought of myself as having these weird issues that are happening and, oh, it's just because I'm in this age group and I'm going to grow out of it. You know, just like my cardiologist said, like, I really did not think of myself as sick because that was really the only thing that was happening to me at the time. I knew it wasn't necessarily normal, but I didn't know why it was happening. And I didn't believe myself to be chronically ill. So because let's, let's not focus on that in a minute, right? Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different types of gaslighting, a lot of different types of medical trauma. And sometimes people get upset with us when we point these things out. So I'm going to apologize in advance for pointing this out. But you were gaslit, right? You, you were told, hey, you're young. It's normal for you to be sitting in your car one minute, getting up and slamming yourself on the floor and finding yourself unconscious. That's normal for a kid, right? That's what you were told. Yeah. And now looking back, it's like, how did I think in my mind that this was normal? And you didn't think it was normal. You and it's were... because I was gaslit 100%. I mean, here I am a young kid still. I mean, I was 19, 20 years old and this doctor who's in his fifties, who has gone to medical school and knows a lot more than me and has lived a lot more than me telling me something. And I'm just submissive to that. Now, during this timing your journey um, where you're having these, you know, these fainting events during the course of this eight years before you were diagnosed, were there any other symptoms developing other than the fainting symptoms? Yes. So, you know, a little bit further down the line, I was 21 years old um, when I had my first child, my daughter. And not long after that pregnancy, I started developing really bad headaches, 
Um, my fainting spells started to come back because, you know, I had to come off the medication they had put me on during my pregnancy. Um, I also started having these weird rashes that would pop up on my body. Um, and I was having, uh, some fatigue. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the energy that I used to. And, you know, I feel like a lot of those things were kind of pushed off as, oh, you're postpartum. It's hormones. Okay. It's normal. Again, it's normal. So we had this sort of chronological gaslighting that you dealt with as a young person. And now you're, now you're a mom. And now we're starting to see, we're starting to see some gender gaslighting or maybe, maybe, uh, you know, mom gaslighting going on right. in, this, in this experience. So talk to us about what your pregnancy was like. And, um, and do you believe that your pregnancy was impacted by this undiagnosed Lyme disease? So my pregnancy with my daughter was pretty normal. Um, you know, I carried her to term. I didn't necessarily enjoy being pregnant. Like <laughs> I know some women really enjoy being pregnant. I, did not enjoy it. I mean, it was painful. I had back pain and, um, you know, ankle swelling and all of that. So I didn't necessarily enjoy it. No. Um, but, but my, you're, pregnancy, but you're, you're a no pain, no gain gal, right? So you understand right. that's part of the process of, of having the gain of a beautiful baby. Exactly. Just deal with it. Um, you know, and my pregnancy was fine. It wasn't until, um, I actually had my daughter when some issues arose and I kind of went through a traumatic birth with her. Um, so talk to us about how your symptoms developed after the birth of your daughter and tell us whether or not you believe you, you became, you know, that, that the birth of your child, child or the trauma associated with the birth of your child was an immune disrupting event that caused your Lyme disease to really take off. I definitely believe it was an immune disrupting event. I mean, I was in labor with her for a really long time, I think like 30 some hours um, and just was not progressing. So they wound up taking me back for an emergency C-section where um, I was not numbed completely and trigger warning, but um, I felt everything throughout my C-section. And I just remember being in that OR, just like looking at my husband with tears in my eyes and screaming and telling him and the anesthesiologist that I could feel everything. And the anesthesiologist was just like, no, you know, you're just feeling pressure. That's normal. Again, that's normal. And I was just like, no, I literally felt them cut me open with the scalpel and, you know, she would knock me out and I'd wake back up and she'd knock me out again. And it was really a horrible, horrible experience. I felt robbed of that special moment of bringing a child, my first child into this world. And again, you know, I think it was an age thing. Again, I was 21 years old. And again, here's an anesthesiologist who had gone to school for years and years and years. Who's a lot older than me. Who's lived more than me. You know, and my husband was still young and naive too. I mean, his thoughts were, he has his doctor telling him like what I'm feeling is normal. So he didn't feel like he had to like advocate for me, even though I was standing there screaming and crying and breaking his hand, squeezing it so hard. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was, it was truly an awful experience. I would never wish on anyone. 
So that's that really is sort of a you know a microcosm of what we see in the Lyme community, right? We we yeah. have we have uh, people who are being gaslit and being told they're not in pain, even when they're in horrific pain and having you know having a, you know a scalpel cut their stomach open. Yeah. They have a family member who's sitting there watching it happen, but even though he's watching it happen and he loves you and he's feeling his hand being crushed. He's believing the doctor who's right. saying you're not really in pain, even though you're there in real time, getting your stomach cut open and screaming in pain, you're right. not in pain. Yeah. And isn't that exactly what we see in the Lyme community all the time? Where we have people who are really sick, mm-hmm. who are, who are in many cases, bed bound. And now the gaslighting doesn't only prevent them from, from being validated from the standpoint of what's wrong with them, but then their family members don't really give them the support or, or advocate for them because they're trusting the very people who are telling you there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Yeah. So talk to us about how that sort of foreshadowed, you know, the, the, the later part of your journey, right? Because now you're starting to get really sick. You're, you're, you're a young mom. You have this new baby, which is difficult for anyone, regardless of, you know, of, uh, of uh, you know, your situation, having, having parented four children myself as yeah. a dad, uh, it, it, it was unbelievably difficult. I can only imagine how difficult it is for any mom. And, and you now as a 21 year old mom of Lyme disease, um, how did things go? I mean, I really started experiencing these weird symptoms and, um, you know, the headaches, the rashes. I also started having this unexplained abdominal pain in my lower right abdomen. Um, And I could almost feel like a bulging. So again, I go back to my primary care doctor. These are the things I'm dealing with. This stomach pain is really awful. I'm tired all the time. I'm depressed because of my traumatic birth experience. I felt like I was robbed. I was depressed over that for a long time. And, you know, my primary care started sending me to specialist after specialist. I went to a dermatologist to look at the rashes on my skin where they said that it was some kind of skin yeast infection. And they gave me like a body wash and cream to use. Um, I went to a GI doctor and my OB to figure out the abdominal issues where I really got no answers. I mean, I had colonoscopies, CAT scans, ultrasounds done. Um, they did wind up finding an ovarian cyst on my right ovary. Um, and you know, they usually go away on their own. So they'd rupture, I'd be in a lot of pain and then they come back and I was just over and over again, getting these ovarian cysts until one time it got so incredibly large that they had to remove it surgically. And I was like, all right. This is it. This is the end of my pain. I know this is it. Um, you know, and they weren't able to salvage my right ovary. They wound up having to take the whole ovary with, um, the cyst. So I really thought that that was the end of my issues. Um, and after the surgery, I still continued to have that abdominal pain. And, you know, one doctor had said to me, you know, it's probably psychosomatic because it's no longer there. You don't have the cysts anymore. So how could you be experiencing this pain? So it was, so is you, you were crazy. You, you couldn't have pain in a leg that we had removed. Right. So yeah. how could you be in pain? Right. Right. So um, let's, let's explore this in a little bit more detail because one of the things that Matt and I are always wondering in the sort of chicken and egg scenario, right? So you, you, yeah. you clearly had Lyme disease, but you didn't, it wasn't diagnosed yet. 
It was clearly uh, it was clearly being managed by your body until you had this immune disrupting event, which was this traumatic birth. Yeah. Your immune system is now being compromised by the Lyme disease. So yeah. now the rest of the symptoms that you're now beginning to develop, do you believe they were developing because your immune system was compromised by the Lyme and other things in your body were taking off, taking off and, you, and your immune system couldn't uh, protect you from them? Or do you believe they were triggered by the Lyme itself and um, they were Lyme disease related symptoms? No, I still, the Lyme disease was not on the radar at all at that point. Um, I really thought the things that I was dealing with was due to the traumatic birth and hormones, you know? Kelsey, I'm, I'm asking you a different question. I'm not asking you whether or not you knew it was Lyme at that time. I'm asking you now, reflecting back, looking back now, Kelsey today, looking back at that window of her life, right? Do you believe that all of these symptoms were directly related to Lyme disease itself, meaning the Lyme disease was causing these symptoms, or do you believe that the Lyme disease was suppressing your immune system and there were other things that were going on in your body that your immune system couldn't focus on because it was being, it was being suppressed by the Lyme disease? Yeah, I mean, looking back now, I definitely 100% believe that the traumatic birth is what really stirred the Lyme to start waking up and doing things um, and affecting me a lot more than just the fainting spells, 100%. So what, you know, one of the challenges that we always have is when we're looking back on this and we're trying to help people on their diagnostic journey is to try to figure out how to help their doctors, right? Mm -hmm. Because in many cases, we see things that are very classically Lyme disease, right? And we know they're Lyme disease. There are other things that may not be classically Lyme disease. And really the reason they're happening, especially in a young, healthy, athletic person like you, um, maybe they're happening because the Lyme disease is suppressing the immune system and the doctor should be taking a step back and looking at your immune system and see what's going on and what is immunosuppressive, right? So uh, that's why I'm asking you that question. Of course, it is chicken or the egg. You don't really know. I was yeah. just wondering what your, what your thoughts were on. So talk to us about how things went from there. Um, you know, you, you're going to all these doctors. You're now being gaslit again by a doctor saying, hey, we removed your ovary. You can't have any pain. It's not real. It's psychosomatic. You're crazy, yeah. right? What are you doing from there? Really from there, it was a journey of, you know, going to multiple doctors, trying to get answers, you know, and going to specialists, trying to get answers, not getting any, and then going back to my primary care and having her refer me back out. And it was just really this vicious cycle. And, you know, going through that really weighs on you mentally. And there were multiple times where I would go through these periods of going to the doc, you know, multiple doctors, and then taking, having to take a step back and take a break to really like regain myself because I would really think like, oh my gosh, I'm crazy. Like nobody can find anything wrong with me. I, I have to be crazy. That has, this has to all be in my head. And then I'd finally, you know, work through those emotions and come to the realization again, like, no, I'm not crazy. This is really happening to me. And then I would go back to the doctors again and try and get more. So it really, it was a cycle for a long time. Yeah, so right. we, call, we call that the carousel of doctors here at Tick Boot yeah. Camp, where you get on the carousel and it's doctor after doctor after doctor, and you're like, I got to get off the carousel, right? And you get off, yeah. right? 
and you get back on the carousel and you're going on and on. So, so at that time, where was your relationship with doctors? Meaning what were you thinking about the medical profession generally and the particular doctors that you were working with, right? Because they were putting you in a position where you were getting off the carousel because you thought you were crazy. Then you had to reset and go back to that gym, this mindset where it was, no, I'm not crazy. I am going to control my mind. I'm not going to let the leave. I'm not going to let my mind take me out of control. And I get back on the carousel and I'm, and I'm now working with doctors again. Talk to us about what that was like for you first emotionally. I mean, it weighed on me a lot emotionally. I really felt like, you know, I needed somebody in my corner. Um, I needed that one physician to really take me seriously. And, um, I actually, I started seeing a nurse practitioner at my primary care office and she was that person for me. Um, she did believe what was happening. And, you know, there was one time I went to her and I really expressed my concerns. I'm like, look, something is wrong with me. I know something is wrong with me. My husband wants another kid. I want another kid eventually, but I know something is wrong with my body and I need to figure it out before we have an another child. And, you know, she really did believe me. Um, I just don't think the outside of the box thinking is really there for, you know, a lot of Western medicine physicians. But isn't it weird, Kelsey, that you're defining Lyme disease as an outside of the box thought process when 2 million people currently have chronic Lyme disease and 500,000 people a year are being diagnosed with Lyme disease. Oh, and by the way, you're on... You're in the line belt. You're in Maryland. You're right here where everybody gets Lyme disease. I mean, why do we have to define that as outside the box thinking when so many people are sick? You're right. It, it shouldn't be an out of the box way of thinking at all. It should be a standard test, especially in pregnant women. So talk to us about how this is impacting your relationship with your husband. You did give us a sort of a peek into that where you said your husband really wanted to have more children and you were resistant because you didn't think you were physically capable of doing that. How, how is how is all of this gaslighting and all of these developing symptoms impacting your relationship with your husband? I mean, we definitely had a lot of up and downs and, you know, at first he just did not get it. He really did not understand. And, you know, we had a lot of arguments about it and we would kind of break up and get back together. And it was really hard for a young couple, you know, with a child trying to figure out what, you know, what was wrong with me and how this was going to impact our future. Do you think part of the reason why he didn't believe you is because he was with you on the carousel of doctors and all the doctors were saying there's nothing wrong with you and therefore he believed there was nothing wrong with you? Most likely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, both of his parents are in the Western medical field. Um, so I think he was kind of conditioned to that way of thinking too, which is, you know, really nobody's fault. It's just how we're taught. So how is this impacting your parenting? How are you, how are you parenting your daughter? And how do you believe that your illness was, you said it robbed you of the experience that you had in birthing this child. Um, do you think it was also robbing you of this experience that you should have had parenting this baby? At that point, I wouldn't say a whole lot. I mean, there were a lot of days where like I'd come home from work and I'd really have no energy to play with her or do anything like that. My husband would kind of have to take over. But again, at that point, I still did not consider myself as sick. I wasn't like deathly ill. And 
you know, yes, I was having these issues, but I did not really categorize myself. It just hadn't clicked with me yet. So let's explore that for a minute, because one of the things that has has so many people troubled in the Lyme community is, and and I'm always really careful about observing how someone looks, right? I'm I'm even afraid to say, hey, you look good, right? Or you you look like you're, you're doing well, right? Because that is a trigger for so many people in the Lyme community, because in many cases, you look good, therefore you're not sick or, you know, so it, be, it does become a trigger. So, so is, is that what was happening with you? You're like, I look good. You know, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sick, right? You know, fainting is normal for young people. So my doctors tell me I'm going on this carousel and I'm not getting any better and I'm getting off. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, this is just such a, a mess. Yeah, it, it was a huge mess. And it was just really hard for me to wrap my mind around Um Cause you know, that time I was working full time. I was a mom. I was so preoccupied with everything and everyone else, but myself. So talk to us about, you know, how your journey progresses from there. You ultimately do have the second child and do you have the second child before or after your Lyme disease diagnosis? So ultimately, you know, I wasn't able to get any more answers until finally I just threw up my hands to my husband. And I said, fine, we'll have it your way. We'll have another kid, even though I knew something was genuinely wrong with me. And I did want another child. I did. But um, yeah, you know, I just kind of let go and we did plan to have another child. And, you know, we got pregnant pretty quickly. And how'd that pregnancy go? Um, This pregnancy was a bit more difficult. Um, I actually suffered from PPROM, which is preterm premature rupture of membranes, which basically means my water broke early. Um, my water broke at 28 weeks gestation, which is extremely early. For those who don't know, a full gestation is 40 weeks. Um, so that was pretty early. And, you know, the night that it happened, uh, I called my doctor and he told me to come in and they kept me overnight and did some testing and they said, you know, your water did break, but we can keep you pregnant, but you have to stay here in the hospital until you give birth. So, you know, they had given me, um, all kinds of medications to keep me pregnant. They gave me magnesium to stop the contractions. And that is also to help, um, with brain bleeds. If the baby was born prematurely, um, they gave me shots of steroids um, to boost the baby's lungs, um, because it was likely that he was going to be born before his lungs were fully developed. Um, and I sat on hospital bed rest for 40 days, which, you know, my doctors and the specialists that I had were pretty amazed that I was able to stay pregnant for that long. So I went from 28 weeks when my water broke to 33 weeks and five days when I ultimately gave birth to him. Um, so the goal, you know, when you, when you rupture early, the goal is to get you to at least 30, 32, 34, you know, each day that the baby stays in is a good thing, you know? So So he was, I mean, the, the more, the more he could develop before he was born, the more likely it is that, that he would be viable and have a healthy, have a healthy outcome. Yeah. So uh, one of the one of the the triggers that you just gave to me was the was the steroids, right? And I and I yeah. am familiar with um, with 
with the use of steroids to help with lung development and, 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 and other, other things with premature babies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how did, how did you feel after the, after the steroids? Because we know, we know steroids can be immunosuppressive as well, right? So was this having yeah. any impact on you physiologically, meaning were your Lyme disease symptoms uh, now developing and, and causing you to feel even more sick um, while you were? Yeah, you between, were- between the, the magnesium, the steroid shots, and then they also started me on some uh, IV antibiotics because once you rupture, you essentially have an open wound and bacteria can get in there, infections can happen. So they kind of give you like a precautionary antibiotic dose. So, you know, the magnesium made me feel like I had the flu. That's like a normal thing with an, with magnesium infusion over 24 hours. But, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't feel great. And while I was shortly after that, while I was in the hospital, I developed this severe oral thrush on my tongue. I mean, it was gnarly and it hurt. I mean, it hurt to eat, it hurt to drink. And I also had a whole bunch of rashes um, pop up on my belly. Now, Kelsey, you had this long window of time when you were in the hospital, right? You had doctors and nurses and other uh, healthcare professionals around you 24 seven for this long window of time. Right. Um, was there anyone that you were able to uh, communicate with to talk about the symptoms that you had that were leading up to your pregnancy that would perhaps give you the opportunity to not only save your baby, but maybe help you to overcome the challenges, the, you know, the physiological challenges that you were facing leading up to that time? Um, really, the only people, the only doctors that I had talked to while I was in there was my OB and then my high risk OB specialist. Um you know, the nurses, the antepartum nurses there were incredible. I mean, I got to know them all so well. Um, they were a really big support to me because, you know, I was in there alone, you know, my, thank God this happened before COVID and I could still have visitors, but you know, my husband was still going to work. My daughter was still going to school. Like I was in there alone. So, um, you know, that was, that was really difficult, but, um, you know, I had expressed my concerns to my OB because, you know, when this first happened, you know, I had always had it in the back of my mind, like something's wrong with me and this is why this happened. And I felt, you know, a lot of guilt around that. And I remember asking my OB, like, why did this happen? And their answer was these things just happen. There's really no there was no explanation, you know, and that's when I really started to do some research, you know, like what are the causes of P-PROM? Why could this be happening? And that's when I really started asking the questions because I'm like, okay, clearly something is wrong with my body because I can't even carry this pregnancy to term. Um, and, you know, come to find out the number one cause of P-PROM is bacterial infections. So leading, leading up to this point, um, you were largely relying on the medical community, right? I mean, you, you, we talked about you being on the carousel of doctors and you just accepted whatever they told you until, until you uh, were gaslit and needed to get off. And then you get back on and you just kept relying on them and relying on them. And part of that was, of course, general culture. And part of it was you're married to a guy whose parents are from the Western medical world. So you just now rely on this community. But now finally, you lose faith in the ability to entirely rely on these people and you start doing your own research and you're now research now takes you to a different place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, um, a wake up call. 
you know, cause I, I just knew something wasn't right. And I just kept asking them, why could this happen? How could this happen? But and really no, you know, what struck me the most was no investigative work was done at all. And that's just standard. It's just, oh, let's throw our hands up and these things just happen. But why, why is this happening? Because you always knew something was wrong. You knew something yeah. was wrong for years and years and years, but you but you continue to rely on the doctors. Right. This moment is really important for us to pause and examine because you no longer believe that they can give you the solutions that you need. And right. you're now going to be an empowered patient and you're now going to go forward and find out what's wrong with Kelsey, right? Right. So talk to us about how that new mindset brought you to the place where you're finally diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um, so shortly after giving birth to my son, like I said, prematurely, I was at 33 weeks. Um, he was in the NICU for about 16 days and we brought him home and everything was good. And, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but then when he was around three months old, he had gotten RSV, which developed into pneumonia, which is serious for most babies at that age, but especially for a preemie because they're so immunocompromised and their lungs aren't fully developed. Um, so that was another huge stressor on me and it caused me to start developing these psychiatric issues where I developed, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I was, just always wanted to be in control over who was around him. Um, constantly bleaching and sanitizing everything to make sure that he didn't get sick again. I mean, and I, this overwhelming anxiety came over me and it was terrifying. I, I had never been in that kind of mindset before. And it had literally felt like an alien had taken over my brain. Okay. Um, so let, let's, let's pause that for a second because I think this is really important. Yep. Do you believe that, um, that an alien had in fact taken over your brain and it was now Lyme invading your brain? Uh, or do you believe that it was your, your, your OCD was the result of being gaslit by the medical community for so many different years? Or do you believe it was the trauma from the, you know, from the birth of this child and the challenges that you had to face, or was it all the above? Looking back, I think it's a combination of all of it. I think it's the trauma. I think it's the stress. Um, but I think ultimately all of those things is what made the Lyme really stir up and start affecting me even more. And at that point it had gone to my brain because it had gone undiagnosed for so long. Um, you know, and on top of the OCD and anxiety, I started developing brain fog, memory issues, cognitive issues, getting lost while I was driving. Um, so that's when it became really scary, really scary for me. So now you're starting to show very clear signs of neurological Lyme disease, right? You're, 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 you're starting to behave or not only, I don't mean behave, you're starting to feel what we start to see very classically in people who are suffering from neurological Lyme. And we talked offline about some of the challenges Matt was facing when he was suffering from his neurological Lyme. And this is, this is a parallel set of experiences, right? Even though right. he didn't have a baby. So now when you're starting to have these, these, um, these neurological, these 
clear signs of neurological Lyme, um, are you sharing with your doctors the symptoms and is anyone getting to a Lyme diagnosis? Yeah, I actually, you know, when the anxiety got really bad and I started having kind of scary intrusive thoughts and just feeling very out of body, um, again, called my primary care, care doctor and said, hey, you know, I'm having these issues. I need to come in and be seen. Um, and originally they had told me, oh, well, we can get you in in a couple of weeks. And I said, you must not hear what I'm saying. I am postpartum and I am having extreme anxiety and intrusive thoughts. Two weeks is too long. I need to get in there immediately. And that's when I really started like advocating for myself, um, you know, and I demanded that I be seen sooner. And, you know, I went in there, saw my nurse practitioner and she said, you know, anxiety and OCD like behaviors are pretty typical for mothers of premature babies but let's run some blood work just to be sure. And, um, you know, she ran a whole bunch of blood work, you know, the standard panels, um, but she also did an ANA, the autoimmune profile. Um, and she did tests for Lyme disease. She did the ELISA. So, I mean, at that point, she didn't really say that Lyme was on her radar. I think it was just a part of she just wanted to run everything that she could, you know, just to be on the safe side. And um, surprisingly enough, this time my Eliza was positive, but my ANA, the autoimmune profile was also positive. So at that point in time, she said, you know, you need to go, go to your OB to have your hormones checked because this is, this may be something postpartum, your hormones are out of whack. Um, and two, you need to go to see a rheumatologist. So again, I was kind of on this like quest, but at this point I had a little bit more validation because my tests were starting to show something. So what I want to follow up here at Kelsey is you had these high ANA levels and you had a positive Lyme test and they wanted you to go look at your hormones to be examined because of it being postpartum related. But I'm sitting here thinking and wanting to scream at your doctor saying, wait a second, late stage Lyme disease and autoimmune come hand in hand. Why are they passing you back off to a postpartum, you know, examination again, when this is something else altogether, in my opinion, I mean, what do you think looking back at that? Well, you know, I think she meant well, I think she, you know, out of caution, wanted me to go see my OB and the rheumatologist. Um, in the meantime, while we waited for me to come back to do the Western blot, because, you know, it's like the two tier testing. If your Eliza's positive, then you come back in, what is it, two weeks or something to do the Western blot. Um, and then they kind of decide if you have Lyme disease or not. Um, but yeah, she just said, you know, in the meantime, go see these people and see if we can get some more answers. Kelsey, do you recall how high your ANA levels were? Yeah, it was actually, I remember it was at a 28. So pretty high, pretty high. Did they test you for any autoimmune disease as a follow-up? I mean, generally ANA is a screening for autoimmunity and then they do yeah. follow-up screenings for other specific autoimmune diseases. Did they ever do that? Yeah, so my primary care sent me to the rheumatologist and they did like a full autoimmune panel, tested for so many different things um, and pretty much, everything came back negative. Besides I think, the ANA. So, I think you know, because the ANA was positive, they're 
they were throwing around lupus or fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, um, ALS. So I do think it's important to note that these autoimmune diagnoses are not perfect also, meaning yeah. we know the Lyme testing is not great. And you were, right. I think, you know, fortunate, you know, and not really so fortunate, but fortunate enough to have a positive test at some point in your journey. But even things like lupus, the testing isn't perfect. For example, right. my grandmother suffered from lupus greatly, and it took her several years to get a proper diagnosis until, yeah. and then she was able to get into remission and live out the rest of her life very, you know, happily and pain-free from lupus. So yeah. I think just my one- aunt- my aunt, doesn't mean suffers. my aunt actually suffers from lupus too. And she said, she's only really tested positive for it one time. And that one time was when she had pericarditis and they take a, had taken some fluid out and tested that. And that's what tested positive for lupus. So I just find it so odd because again, I'm, I'm just sitting here getting more and more frustrated at your doctors, not, yeah. you know, not trying to be too hard on them, but they're going down the autoimmune route, at least right. with a rheumatologist. They're going down the postpartum route, which you've exhausted in great detail, but yeah. there's something else going on. Right. Lyme is even at the center the, of all of this, right? I mean. Yeah. And even the rheumatologist, when I went to go see him, I said, you know, I do also have this. I have a positive Lyme disease test. And at this point, I didn't know how resistant Western medicine doctors are to Lyme disease. And I'm like, look, I have this. And he goes, well, this doesn't mean that you have Lyme disease. I'm like, but it says positive. What do you mean this? You know, I was so genuinely confused. Um, but yeah, when, but I knew I, I kind of had this gut feeling that it was, it was Lyme. Um, you know, so once he had ran, once the rheumatologist had ran all of the autoimmune stuff and pretty much all of it had come back as negative, I was just like, this is, this is the route I'm going you know, it's, it's gotta be the Lyme disease. And I went back to my primary care and they did the Western blot. And I think I had tested positive on the Western blot for like one or two IgM bands, which technically is not CDC positive. Um, but my primary care said, you know, this basically means that you're, we're not really sure if you have Lyme disease or not, but let's start you on doxycycline just to be safe. She said, you know, it looks like you have an acute infection because I was testing for the IgM bands. So let's do the doxycycline and kind of see if that helps. So there's a couple of things here I want to point out though, Kelsey, right? So first of them, first of all, is we get people messaging us on a daily basis saying, I think I have Lyme disease. I tested for it and it came back negative. Can I still have it? And the answer is yes. So we need to really stress the point that doctors can and should be making clinical diagnoses based on symptomology and trying to help their patients. And that's not happening in most cases. That's the first observation I'm seeing in your experience. The second observation I'm seeing in your experience is that they saw the IgM and they thought, oh, maybe you have a recent infection, but they didn't consider your history. All of your history is an indication of you having Lyme disease for almost seven years since the time you were 19 and you're now 26, but they're ignoring that and saying, oh, it might be a recent infection. Let's give you some doxy and get you cured and move on with your life, which again, seemed like they weren't looking at the big picture. So like looking back, what do you think about that? Um, looking back, I am, I am grateful that she decided to run that test and prescribe me the doxycycline. Cause I think otherwise I still would have, I wouldn't have known. And I probably would have gone 15, 20 years without knowing. So I do have some gratitude there, but again, there is an ignorance around Lyme disease and, um, you know, doctors really don't make it known that the testing is not 100% accurate. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
it's kind of like a bittersweet thing looking back now. Kelsey, did any of your doctors, any of your, any of your doctors that you were seeing for childbirth and postpartum, any of your, your primary care doctor, any of your specials, like your rheumatologist, did any of them ever tell you that late stage Lyme disease is greatly linked to autoimmune disease? No. And before we get to the doxycycline, I do want to go down the other path because when you, when you had the blood work back and you had the ANA and you had the Lyme, they said, go see the rheumatologist and also go follow up with your hormones because we think this could be hormonal as well. Now, what were those tests or those results? And what was that doctor experience like when you went and did that on the other side? Um, when I went to my OB to have my hormones checked, they actually wound up not checking my hormones because she was like, you just had a baby. Of course, your you know hormones are going to be high and out of whack. So they didn't even bother testing it at all. Um, so yeah, she actually prescribed me some Zoloft and sent me on my way. My OB prescribed me Zoloft. So anything is they're literally breaking their necks to not have to think about or focus on Lyme disease is what I'm taking away from your story. Yeah. So I had, I had brought it up to my OB that I had the positive Eliza and she did say, she's like, it could be Lyme disease, but she's an OB. I mean, that's not her specialty. She doesn't really know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, but Kelsey, was it your primary care physician who, who then said, okay, you have these, these IgM, we think you have a recent infection, we're going to give you doxy. That was your primary care physician? Yes, my primary care. How long were you prescribed doxycycline for? Um, I think it was like two or three weeks. So I know this is a hard question, and I'm not sure that even the, the greatest scientists that are you know out there today can answer this question, but what do you think is an accurate timing or dosage of doxycycline for somebody like yourself? now knowing that it was late stage Lyme and not early acute Lyme? I think if it was acute Lyme disease, I think three months at least of doxycycline with and, a good probiotic. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that's important as well. So talk to us about that though. I mean, it seems so basic for us now because we're so deep in it, but for those that are listening and are early on in their journey, why is a probiotic so important when treating with antibiotics for Lyme disease? Um, when you're treating with antibiotics for Lyme disease, it kills the good and bad bacteria, um, the good bacteria in your gut, and it screws up your gut microbiome. Um, so it's good to replace that with a probiotic with some good bacteria. And there's some good alternatives as well. I mean, I, I, not as much regularly anymore, but there was a good year period where I drank a kombucha every single day to help with my gut health after being on antibiotics. There's some herbal things too that you can take. Yeah, it's definitely a trial and error thing. I know some people can't tolerate the kombucha because it's high in histamine and stuff like that, but it's definitely trial and error to figure out what works for you. So let's talk about that. Why would kombucha, which is high in histamine, be a problem for some people who are on antibiotics trying to help their gut health? Um, Some people with Lyme disease develop mast cell activation syndrome, um, which is basically like an overload of histamine. And kombucha is highly fermented and high in histamine. So if you're eating things that are and drinking things that are high in histamine on top of having all those mast cell issues, it can be a whirlwind of disaster. <laughs> so just for, just so we can get to it in a little bit, did you ever experience any sort of MCAS related symptoms or, or inflammation related symptoms or anything like that with histamines? Yes, I did. Um, so shortly after starting the doxycycline, I actually started having these weird things happen to me. I think it was two weeks into it, um, you know, after my primary care had prescribed it, I started having these crazy neurological episodes. Um, 
And looking back now, I believe them to be seizures. Um, I was not, <clears throat> I wasn't convulsing like, like you would see with a grand mal seizure. But what was happening to me was I had this feeling of, it literally felt like somebody was scrambling my brain, like taking a whisk and scrambling my brain. And I would become paralyzed. My hands and my arms would get stuck. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. Um, and I had no idea what was happening to me. Not none at all. Um, and I called my primary care and I said, Hey, I think I'm allergic to this medication. <laughs> you know, something is going on. You know, when it was happening, I was screaming to my husband and my mom to call 911 because I thought I was dying. Um, and she was like, Oh, well, I've never really heard of this happening. Um, but yeah, you know, stop taking it if it's, if it's affecting you that much. And that's when I was like, okay, this lady, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So, um, that's when I jumped on some Lyme groups on Facebook and I posted, you know, what was happening to me. And so many people commented on it and was like, oh, you're just herxing, you know, no big deal. Uh, and kind of, made it seem, you know, made it seem like a normal thing, which it is normal in the Lyme world to herx, but, you know, I was having severe neurological Herxheimer reactions that were, that were really terrifying. Kelsey, I want to ask you a few questions about that. The first one is you've had different guests tell us different things about what their views are towards Herxing. Mm -hmm. Some people believe you got to go hard and you have to just fight through it and you'll get better in the end. And you have to just deal with things like paralysis and seizures and not being able to move and having mm -hmm. these real extreme symptoms. Other people, and one in particular I can think of, Nick Terensky, who came on this podcast, told us that he treated too aggressively at first. Mm -hmm. He started having seizures as well, and it made him even worse and did some permanent damage in his body that he yeah. regrets and wishes he never did because it was too aggressive and too much herxing. So where do you stand in that, in that debate where, you know, no pain, no gain, or you have to go easy because you can get worse and maybe even cause some damage by extreme herxing? Yeah, in the moment. Um, you know, once I learned what herxing was and everybody in the Lyme world was telling me, oh, herxing is a good thing. You know, it means that the bacteria, you know, it's dying off. It's going away. Um, again, my gymnast mindset was no pain, no gain. All right, let's push through it and let's get through this and get rid of this thing. You know, if it causes me pain now, whatever the gain later will mean that I will never have to deal with this again. Or so I thought. Um, but looking back now. I do believe that that caused some permanent damage for me. Um, and I think that's why I am still cognitively disabled and have a lot of the neuroinflammation. Um, and I 100% regret it. So Richard and I are always looking for patterns and observations based on our guests. And what I'm seeing with you is, and it's very similar to my own experience, is that you had positive ANA levels, which I do as well and did actually not, not anymore, thank God. And yeah. you're positive for Lyme you know, you're sensitive to inflammation and histamines, and you're getting a lot of things that are indicating potentially MCAS and, and a lot of just severe sensitivities. And then when you treat with doxycycline, which again, is a, is a broad spectrum antibiotic, but there are more aggressive treatments. I mean, people treat with, with doxycycline and other things at the same time, right. you're just treating with doxy and you get that sick. So yeah. what do you think that meant? I mean, my takeaway is you probably had so much more than just a Lyme bacteria in your body that was being killed and therefore you had such a toxic die off of all of the things being killed and your yeah. body became toxic and you started to have seizures and became paralyzed. Like, what do you think looking back, was that a sign your doctor should have picked up on to say, there's more to the picture here. We got to figure this out and maybe we got to go a little gentler with this approach. So at the time I was seeing my primary care, um, and she had prescribed the doxycycline. So 
and she had no idea what herxing was. I mean, she really did not know. And it wasn't until I started doing my own research or research and started joining the Lyme Facebook groups and really educating myself um, by people that have been through this, where I finally realized that it was time to go see a Lyme literate doctor. And um, the Lyme literate doctor that I began with was very Western in his way of treating and very aggressive with the oral antibiotics. I mean, it was no herbs, no pulsing. I mean, it was just constantly on antibiotics, antiparasitics, antimalarials. Um, and, you know, at that time, I just didn't know. I didn't, I was still in that mindset of, I need to push through this. Even though I was getting sicker, I was getting so much sicker. I became bed bound. My mom had to move in with us because I couldn't care for the kids. Um, you know, I, in my mind, I thought that I was doing a good thing and, you know, looking back, like in ways, yes, I do. I do regret going that hard because clearly it was not good for me, but at the same time, you know, some of the other infections that I had, like the more serious ones, like the Rocky mountain spotted fever and, you know, the Babesia and stuff like that. I think it was also necessary for me to take those antibiotics. Um, I just wish that I wish that I knew what I know now. So I could have like pulsed things, you know, educated myself on how to support my detox pathways and started detoxing prior to starting the antibiotics, you know? Um, so there's, there's a lot of things I would have done differently, but at the same time, like I said, I don't, I think everything happens for a reason. And I think I had to go through all of that to get to where I am now. Agree, but Kelsey, I think you're here today to help other people learn from what you went through yeah. to shortcut their journey and not have to suffer as much, right? I mean, that's why you're on this podcast today is to give Definitely. this advice to other people. So, you know, there's a couple of things before we get to your Lyme Litter Doctor, I have a few follow-up questions. How long were you treating with the doxy for before you went there? Did you go the full course or did you, did you, did you say, okay, something's going on, I got to pivot and make a change pretty quickly after the doxy? Um, I did go the full course. And that's three weeks, right? Yeah. Okay. So the other question I have is your, you did mention detox. So did your primary care physician talk to you about anything? I mean, even having Greek yogurt for your, for your stomach or a probiotic or kombucha or conversely about the, the ability of your body to purge the toxins, these endotoxins being generated from the kill diet for the bacteria. Was it ever discussed detox, uh, gut health, things like that, that, that need to be addressed when treating Lyme disease? No, none of that was ever discussed. All right. So let's fast forward. How did you find your Lyme literate doctor? Um, through some local Lyme Facebook pages. Um, and also Cassidy and she had mentioned, you know, some people in the area. Um, and I kind of just picked one. <laughs> so. Okay. So now you're with this Lyme literate doctor and you mentioned that he was very much Western and was using antibiotics. So it sounds like he was using a combination approach with doxy and other antibiotics. Is that yes. correct? Yes. So, so but before, I'm sorry, but so my thought is this, right? So you're walking in from one doctor who didn't, and I guess in fairness, it wasn't a specialist who was treating you with doxy, but you, right. it made you bed bound. You're having seizures. You go to a specialist who's telling you, I'm going to keep you on that same medication, but adding even more drugs now to help you. Were you anxious that you were going to get even worse? Yeah, I was really scared. I was really scared. Um, and, you know, when I first saw my Lyme literate doctor, he did the more accurate Lyme disease testing. Um, and he also tested me for co-infections and, um, you know, just found 
all kinds of different things and was like, you need to be on this for this, this for that. An antihistamine to actually, I was on like four antihistamines at the time because my mast cell stuff was so bad. I mean, I was breaking out in hives, wheezing. It was just awful. Um, so yeah. Well, Kelsey, was, what were those co-infections though? So you mentioned you've had a ton of stuff. Do you recall what co-infections that came up on the testing that your Lyme later doctor did? Um, so initially was the Lyme, um, a couple of different species of Borrelia, the Borrelia afzeli and Borrelia garini, um, tick-borne relapsing fever, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Babesia, Bartonella. Um, I think that's it. Oh, that's it. That's that. That's, you know, it's yeah, only, just, it's only, just it's only seven, like six or seven. It's all, just you know, seven yeah. disease, no big deal. <laughs> so you, okay. So you also did, so those are the, those are the co-infections from your tick bite that were part of the picture with your chronic Lyme disease. And as we know, it's never just a Lyme bacteria. Right. So you also mentioned though, you had MCAS levels that were looked at with this doctor as well. And you put on several antihistamines to address the inflammation and your, and your sensitivities. So what kind of testing was done to figure out what was going on with your MCAS? So he actually didn't do like any blood testing. Um, he did what was called a scratch test where you like scratch this, your skin with your nail or, you know, something kind of sharp. And if it stays red for a really long time and you're having, you know, all the other symptoms of MCAS, then you most likely have it. So it was kind of like a clinical diagnosis. There was no formal testing done. I think it's very common and MCAS is very as much associated with tick-borne illness. And especially if you're exhibiting the symptoms, it's you likely have it. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about, you said you were on those four or so antihistamines. We have learned from past guests that they're H1 blockers and H2 blockers, and they're different. And sometimes they're used together or individually to treat MCAS. So what kind of specific antihistamines were you on to help treat the MCAS? Um, I was on Pepsid, uh, Singular, Claritin, and Ketotyphin. So you were on the H1 and the H2 blockers. You were on a combination of both. Yeah. Did they help you at all with the MCAS? Yes, somewhat. Um, but, you know, they also had to be accompanied with large diet changes. Um, you know, low histamine diet, no gluten, dairy, or sugar, nothing that would exacerbate my immune system, really. And give us an idea for those listening who suspect they may have MCAS, which is a hard thing to figure out. What were your symptoms that your doctor used to clinically diagnose you with MCAS? Um, so I was having rashes. I was also having some wheezing after eating certain foods. Um, I was having, like my skin was just very like splotchy. Um, yeah, I, I think I was pretty much, I'm sure there was more. I mean, it, it's so hard to remember all of these symptoms and a lot of them overlap too. But um, yeah, I think those were the main things. Those are the main things. But that's key. I think so many of the MCAS symptoms overlap with tick-borne illness symptoms. It's hard to delineate what's coming from what. Right. So, but I think you also mentioned that when you- Well, I also had, um, I just remember, I also had really bad cheek flushing and burning in my cheeks. That was another symptom of the MCAS. So- you, you, so in general, MCAS is really just an overreaction of your immune system to create these, I think, histamines, right? Or histamine reaction, which creates sort of this allergic reaction going on in your body. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah. Basically, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, your mast cells become disrupted and they release histamine and all kinds of other nasty stuff throughout your body. 
Um, that was how my doctor at the time explained it to me at least. So yeah, it's not, it's not fun to go through at all. So another interesting observation, Rich and I, uh, the two podcasts prior to yours, we, we special guest co-hosted with Debbie and Candice from two alpha gals. And are you familiar with alpha gal syndrome? Yes, I am. And, you know, the more we learn from Debbie and Candace and the more we learn about the alpha-gal community, we're convinced that many people that are suffering with chronic Lyme have an overlapping alpha-gal allergy, which is making their sickness even worse. Mm-hmm. And we've proved that out in some cases. So looking back, do you think there was ever any potential or even now possibly where you had or have an alpha-gal allergy, which was co- overcomplicating your MCAS symptoms and also complicating your other tick-borne illness symptoms? Not that I can say. And... <clears throat> I don't know. I can't remember if I was ever tested for alpha gal or not. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't reacting to me. So I don't think alpha gal was really ever on the radar. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that was ever an issue for me. It very well could be, who knows? I mean, I had so many other issues, so it could have been, it could have been, but. Yeah. And just, just for our listeners, cause I know it's such a, a not talked about topic, we learned from Debbie and Candice that alpha gal is not an all the time thing, meaning you can have meat one day and be fine and have it the next day and have a reaction. So it's really hard to identify, or it could be something where you're, you're extremely allergic to things like gluten and dairy, but not necessarily as much as a pork product. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are sort of not known about alpha gal, but they're yeah, in I general. I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I just, I encourage, I encourage, you know, you Kelsey and everybody else. I just got one uh, about last month was my first alpha gal test just to get a test, right? If you're getting blood work done and you have insurance, get it done. Ask for, you know, so what do we always ask for is a full tick-borne disease panel, which covers obviously Lyme and all the codes and then a, uh, an alpha gal panel. And, you know, if you have insurance, your copay is your copay and you're going to get all that right. testing done regardless. And it gives you yeah. more information to have a better idea of what's going on in your body. So something yeah, we definitely recommend. Definitely couldn't hurt. Definitely couldn't hurt to get checked. So. So anyway, now back to your Lyme and co-treatment, you're using doxycycline and some other antibiotics. Do you remember what those other antibiotics were? Yeah, it was um, doxycycline, azithromycin, mepron, coartum. Um, I think at one point I was on amoxicillin too. Uh, those are all the ones I can remember. All right, so let's talk about how you felt, because I'm really anxious here. You were so sick and paralyzed from just doxy, mm-hmm. and now you're on this combination therapy with your Lyme litter doctor. So was, I guess, before we even get into how you felt, was detox addressed as an integral part of this treatment journey now with your Lyme specialist? Actually, no, it was not with this specific doctor. Um, I think at one point he had said, oh, well, there might be some benefits to taking some activated charcoal. Um, but you know, at this time I was so, I was so incredibly sick and my nervous system was just on overdrive where I couldn't even handle taking a hot bath. Um, I would have to sit in maybe like a lukewarm bath. I mean, there's no way I could have done a sauna or anything like that. Um, you think those are MCAS symptoms, Kelsey, what you're describing, you know, heat sensitivity, not being able to take a bath, not being able to use a sauna flushing of the face, redness of the face, skin sensitivities, allergies, food sensitivities, histamine reactions. All of those to me are, are, are kind of tied to MCAS as well, right? Yeah, I think it was a mix between the MCAS and the Babesia and probably the Rocky Mountain too. Um, Definitely. That can kind of mess with your body temperature and stuff. Yeah, for sure. We've, we've heard that as well. So it's, it's so hard yeah. to figure out what's causing what and probably an overlap, yeah. right? Like we talked about earlier. So now the hard question is, 
how did you respond to all this medication all at once? Um, pretty badly, pretty badly. I mean, I just continued to decline and I was just constantly, constantly in excruciating pain. Um, you know, when COVID started, we made the decision to move my mom in here. Um, cause I needed the help. And we also didn't want people coming in and out of the house too. So, um, because I was immunocompromised and so was my son. So, you know, having her here living with us was, was a big help and it was 100% necessary. I needed it. And, you know, if it wasn't for my husband and my mom, I couldn't imagine being a single mom going through this. I mean, I probably would have lost my kids. I probably would have lost custody of my kids. You know, Kelsey, this is an important topic because Lyme is, is a family disease, right? We've, we've discussed this with other guests where Lyme and your Lyme disease impacts your whole family. It impacts your, your children, your, 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 your husband, and even your mom who came in to help you. But I think in the end, you know, people look at that as a weakness and they feel, they feel like they are not strong enough to get through it. But I think in the end, that's what helps you get through it. And it yeah. makes you stronger as a family as a result of it. So looking back, like, how did you feel about having to have your mom come and help and have your husband pick up additional responsibilities because you were so sick? Um, it was definitely a hit to my pride because, you know, I had to stop driving. I had to stop working. You know, I had to quit my career. And so it was a huge hit to my pride. And, you know, I hated asking for help, but I genuinely needed it because at the end of the day, I mean, I was... I was scared to be at home alone with my kids. I was genuinely scared. You know, my son at that time was still a baby. He was three, four months old. And I was like, am I going to forget to feed him? You know, am I, am I going to forget when I gave him his vitamins and supplements last? And, you know, I, I had to write everything down and I needed to rely on the minds of these other people that were, you know, supporting me. So Kelsey, it, was, it stripped me of everything. I mean, it really did. And, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that you recognize that and ask for help because it's hard for us to take care of ourselves. I mean, I remember having to have my mother, my father, my grandmother, and my grandfather help me just remember to take my medication because I was taking it two or three times or I wasn't taking it at all because I couldn't remember. And I was just so cognitively impaired. So I think that the fact that you recognize that and ask for help is, is a great thing. And mm -hmm. now the, 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 the follow-up question is looking back do you now, are you happy that you made those decisions to ask for help? And do you think that you're better off because of it? Oh yeah, 100%. I, I needed that help. I mean, there was no way I could have done this on my own. Like I said, I mean, I probably would have lost custody of my kids if I was a single mother. I mean, I just could not care for them the way that they needed to be cared for. So Kelsey, talk to us about how long were you on these antibiotics for the Mepron, the azithromycin, the amoxicillin, the doxycycline? How long were you on these antibiotics for with your Lyme litter doctor? And just getting worse and worse and worse and more and more sick. Um, so I was on all of them for about six months and he had added in the coartum um, to treat, I think it was to treat the Babesia. Um, and I was just getting so sick. I mean, I was terrified to go to sleep at night. Um, I genuinely thought I was going to die in my sleep. I remember laying in bed, having so much trouble falling asleep. And like, as I was dozing off, I would stop breathing and I would wake up kind of gasping for air. And it was almost like, I felt like my body giving up. And then like the mom in me was like, Nope, you have people to live, live for wake up, 
wake up and I would, it would happen all night. Um, and I really just, at one point I felt my will to rest overcoming my will to fight, which was scary. You know, I think, especially when you're young and you know, you have a family to live for. It's like, am I going to die from this? You know, at one point I genuinely thought I was going to die. At one point, my husband was waking up throughout the night to make sure I was still breathing. And I would make him check on me to make sure I was still breathing before he left for work in the morning. So my kids didn't have to like find me dead in bed, you know, or my mom, like it was just, it was so entirely gut-wrenching to go through. Um, and after he had added in the quartum, you know, I started getting even worse. And I remember I was in the shower. I couldn't, I could never stand in the shower. So I was sitting hunched over in the shower and I was just crying and crying and crying and just praying, asking God, the universe, like whoever would listen, like to give me some kind of sign as to where I should go next, because I knew in my gut that these antibiotics were not going to make me better. I mean, they were only making me sicker. I knew that there was a different direction that I needed to go. So what was your Lyme specialist though, Kelsey saying about all this? I mean, you were close to death. I mean, you know, and this is a real trigger topic here, but people can die from complications due to Lyme disease. I mean, there's a socialite out of, out of the Hamptons close to where we live who had was, was a billionaire and could not get proper care and, and unfortunately passed away at a very young age from it. Right. So that's, that's a reality. I think it sounds like you were very close to, and thank God you've made a, you know, a huge transformation since then. Yeah. So what was your doctor saying? I mean, this was a real serious problem where you were getting worse and worse and worse. And you were, you were, as you noted, you were at points stopping breathing when you were sleeping. So what, how was he responding to you telling him what was going on at home? Um, you know, although he was a Lyme literate doctor and I think he was really, he was, he was very smart, um, you know, and explained things well, but at the same time, he was still very Western in his way of thinking and kind of gaslit me too. Like the Herx thing is normal. What, you know, what you're experiencing is normal. And I'm like, you know, there's a fine line between Herxing and feeling like you're going to die. I mean, there is such a thing as Herxing too much. Um, and he just kept telling me like, no, I think you're getting better. I think you're getting better. And I'm just sitting there telling him, no, I am not. I'm not. And, you know, he just wasn't recognizing that it was too much for me. So finally, I just made the decision to part ways and go a different direction. Kelsey, I'm glad you said that because I feel very strongly about that topic. And I know not everybody agrees with me, but I think there is such a thing. I strongly believe there is such a thing as herxing too much where it can become very damaging, cause permanent damage and lead to things like you experienced where you were, you were having issues even breathing when you fell asleep. So I think that's a really important, you know, note that you're sharing with us. Thank you for being so vulnerable and, and just being so truthful and raw with us to share your, your experiences. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you, you prayed to God or the universe for a sign about what to do next because you knew this wasn't working and you're in six months now with this doctor who's just not getting you any better. So what happens next? So oddly enough, a couple nights after that moment in the shower, that epiphany moment, um, I actually had like an extremely vivid dream, which was odd because I hadn't dreamt in a long time. 
And I don't know if that's like normal for people with Lyme or, you know, going through treatment, but I hadn't had a dream in such a long time, but I had this dream that was extremely vivid and felt so real where, um, my grandfather who has passed away came to me in this dream and said, Kelsey, you need to look into SOT for Lyme. It's going to help you. And at that point I had no idea what SOT was. I didn't know what it stood for or nothing. Like maybe I had seen it like subconsciously in a group somewhere. And that's what caused me to have the dream. I don't know, but I took that as holy shit. That that's my sign. I, I literally asked for that. Um, so yeah, from there, I kind of like started searching the online Lyme groups and Instagram and like, what is SOT for Lyme? And <laughs> finally figured it out. And there was actually um, a Facebook support group specifically for this therapy, which has a boatload of information in the files. So that's when I kind of started ed- educating myself on the therapy and um, deciding if that was going to be the right path for me. Just to recap, you were at your worst. You were afraid every night that you were going to die and for right, right, you know, for good cause. And you prayed to God that you would have a sign. Shortly after you have a dream, you never dream, or at least you never remember your dreams. And your grandfather comes to you and tells you to look at SOT for Lyme and you have no idea what SOT for Lyme is. So clearly it's not a coincidence. That's a sign, right? Now you start researching SOT and you find some groups about it. So now walk us through the transition from your current Lyme specialist to now finding a doctor who specializes or utilizes SOT to treat Lyme disease. So you know, after I started researching SOT, I knew that it was going to take a little bit of time to like actually receive this therapy, to find a doctor, to get the therapy made for me, to have it be sent from Greece and back. And, um, so in the meantime, I actually did find a doctor of oriental medicine here locally. Um, and I started seeing her to kind of help support me, um, throughout this process. Um, And then, you know, I ultimately decided on a facility down in Georgia that does this therapy um, and a doctor that I thought would be a good fit for me um, to do the supportive oligonucleotide therapy. So Kelsey, we we did a little bit of research on SOT and we get questions asked of us often in in our comments, specifically on a lot of our, our social media posts. And we have a lot of guests who answer for us and help support the community that have done it personally. But for everybody listening, I think SOT seems to be really promising therapy that has helped a lot of people. And I know it's used in the cancer world. And I know it's right now kind of new and experimental for the Lyme community, but again, resulting in a lot of promising results. So can you share with our listeners, what is SOT therapy? Can you say again, what it stands for? What it was was initially designed for now, how it's being used in the Lyme community? Yeah, so SOT stands for Supportive Oligonucleotide Therapy. It's a mouthful. Um, it's also known as Antisense Oligonucleotide Therapy or AOT. Um, it's been used in the past for hepatitis C, um, certain types of cancers. It was developed in Europe like over 20 years ago um, and has been used for Lyme, co-infect, some co-infections um, and viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, HSV um, and those kinds of things for the past, I think five years or so. Um, but essentially what it is, is it's a mRNA therapy. And I know a lot of people have heard the mRNA in regards to the, va- the vaccine and stuff, um, but this is kind of different. It's actually, what they do is they take a large sample of your blood 
and um, in the lab, they identify the pathogen that they're trying to target. So, you know, prior to getting prior to getting the therapy, what typically happens is you're tested for the Lyme and co-infections to see what's affecting you the most. And a lot of the times in most cases, it's Lyme disease. So, you know, the first SOT therapy that I received was for Lyme disease for Borrelia burgdorferi. And they um, identify the pathogen and they basically might make an antisense to the sense. So it's like a DNA mRNA therapy. Like if you think of a DNA sense strand, like that swirly thing with the lines, um, they basically make the opposite to that. And they create these mRNA molecules where they're injected back into you and they attach to the DNA of the pathogen that you were trying to target. And they tell that pathogen to no longer be able to replicate. So essentially, whatever Lyme bacteria is in your body um, will no longer replicate and eventually finish off its life cycle. Lyme disease, I think, has like an 80-day life cycle. It's very long. So it finishes off its its life cycle, and then you should essentially be Lyme-free. That's the idea, at least. But, you know, the same with any other treatment for Lyme. I think what works for some doesn't work for all. And, um, you know, this treatment just made the most sense to me, you know, and I had that sign, I had to go for it. So scientifically, I mean, I'm no scientist, I'm no doctor. And I hope I described that well enough. Um, Kelsey, you just said you're no scientist, you're a doctor, but we've never had anybody on this podcast explain SLT therapy as good as you. So thank you for that. That was, and just, just to recap that. So basically what you're telling us is they take your blood out, Mm -hmm. they send it to another country because they can't do it here in the States, I guess. Yeah. What they do in another country is they then identify whatever pathogens are ailing you and mm-hmm. they then create some sort of antidote for that. And they put that back into your blood. This, this, I believe you call the DNA MRNA, put it back into yeah. your blood. When that gets back into your blood, then it gets shipped back to the States. They infuse that back into your body. And that new infused blood is actually, it's binding to the pathogen in your case, the Lyme bacteria, and it's telling it do not replicate. And it just dies off and it can never reproduce or recreate. And essentially you are Lyme free at that point. Is that um, good? Yeah. Except for they don't, they don't put the MRNA molecules back into your blood. It's really just like a little tube of molecules that you can't even see to the naked eye. Um, and then they kind of fill it up with saline and then inject it through an IV. Oh, so they don't put it back. So you don't put your blood back into your body. They take your blood no. to analyze your blood and yes. then they create this tube of MRNA and that's what gets infused back into you. Yeah. So what do they need your blood for to figure out what type of the pathogen you have, what species of the Lyme bacteria? Yeah. To find the pathogen that you have on like a DNA stamp. I mean, they literally need to take the DNA of the pathogens that you specifically have and create like an anecdote to that. So what I find interesting is that you're sending away your blood for them to confirm, or at least get even more detailed about what you already know about your body. You knew you had Borrelia and multiple species of it. You send it overseas. They then analyze your blood to figure out what species. And I know you had many of Borrelia they have, you have to then create this concoction to then go in and and shut it off, basically shut off the Lyme bacteria from reproducing. When they send your blood away, are they only looking for what you tell them to look for? Meaning you knew you had Lyme to look for Lyme, or are they doing a, a wide variety of testing just to see what else may be there that you don't even know about? So it's actually up to your ordering physician, your doctor, um, to do the testing prior and to determine which pathogen you're going to target, because you can only get SOT 
for one thing at a time. And it's very specific. So, you know, we know of Babesia, we know of Bartonella, but what a lot of people don't know is there's different species of those infections. So there's Bartonella hensley, Bartonella elizabethae, Babesia, whatever, you know, <laughs> I don't know all the names, but um, it, it's that particular. So it needs to be created for the species that you are carrying. So like for me specifically, I had the Borrelia burgdorferi and then four other types or three other types species of Borrelia, the Abzali, Garini, and the Borrelia hermsi, which is the tick-borne relapse and fever. So, you know, one treatment doesn't work for all of the Borrelias. Um, but the idea is starting off with the Lyme SOT that once Lyme goes away or starts to go away, Lyme is what suppresses our immune system the most. Um, so once that starts to go away, our immune system is able to kind of kick back on a little bit and start getting rid of these co-infections with a lot more ease. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of the times when people are trying to treat co-infections and Lyme at the same time, you know, for me specifically, I was doing that with the antibiotics and it just was not working. I think you really need to take it layer by layer. Um, and that's what worked for me personally. You know, once the Lyme started to go away, then the other Borrelia started to fall off and the ones that didn't, then I would get an SOT for that one specifically. And um, yeah, it's really been kind of eye-opening to see that you can't, you can't hit all of these things at once. A, a lot of the times you can't, you really have to take it one step at a time. And I know a lot of people can become so overwhelmed. Like I became so, I had seven tick-borne diseases. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, but I think the best thing for people to know is to really just take it one thing at a time. So peel back that onion. And, and yeah. I'm glad you brought up that concern because I was going to ask you that question of, you're just killing one species of Borrelia and you had four plus other co-infections going on. So is a targeted therapy really the best approach? And I think you answered that brilliantly, right? Because we're starting to learn, and even studies that just came out <laughs> yesterday at Tulane University, we're starting to learn that it's, it's Borrelia, it's Lyme that's creating the inflammation, that's mm -hmm. creating the, the probably the MCAS trigger, and mm -hmm. it's also creating the autoimmunity, which you had, you had those ANA yeah. levels. So and Lyme's it really causing- suppresses your immune system. Right. And it suppresses your immune system. So if you can, if you can kill off that Borrelia, whatever's left, your inflammation goes down, your immune system stops becoming a, a, a target for your healthy cells. And now your body can actually start to do what it was designed to do and start to attack and purge other pathogens that it couldn't do because of Borrelia is what your, what your argument is, I believe. Correct. Yeah. 100%. And clearly it worked for you. So that yeah. was your game changer. And, so you know, the craziest thing is you know, after the Lyme started going away, we started retesting these co-infections, like the Rocky Mountain spotted fever specifically. I mean, I had treated that with antibiotics for six months. I mean, that should have been gone, but I was still testing IgM positive, like very high for the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And, um, once the Lyme started to go away, it dropped like a whole entire point. Hmm. So, so I'm like, just, I want to re repeat that. So you were treating Rocky Mountain spotted fever for six months weren't making progress. You get rid of the line with SOT and the Rocky Mountain spot of fever starts to go away because your immune system is doing what it's supposed to do. And that's better than the antibiotics you run for the Rocky Mountain spot of fever. Yeah. 
I mean, and it's still not gone completely. Um, but like I said before, it was just staying really high and not budging one single bit. But, um, you know, it's gone down quite a bit and we're still kind of keeping an eye on things. So, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And, you know, after my Lyme SOT, we also retested like the Borrelia afzeli and Bar Borrelia garini, which are Lyme-like spirochetes. Um, they're like from ancient Europe. But uh, those started to go away too, like just all on their own. So I think it was pretty interesting to see. And I think another interesting point that you bring up that's really going to be helpful for our listeners is you first got tested for Lyme and you were IgM positive. They thought it was an acute infection. It clearly wasn't, right? And here you are, you're proving that point because you're six months in now to a positive Rocky Mountain spotted fever diagnosis and you're still IgM positive for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So maybe instead of looking at it as an IgM versus IgG, where an IgM means a recent infection from a tick bite, an IgM can just mean that it's an active infection rather than just a recent infection, correct? I think we need to reframe the way we think about that. Definitely. I think, you know, what happened with my son's birth really caused it to become active. And that's why I started testing positive for it. So did you, did you stop treating with this, this Lyme litter specialist who was destroying your body with all these antibiotics? Yes. And what doctor, are you comfortable sharing the name of the doctor that you, you went to? I think you said it was in Georgia, right? For the SOT. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Are you comfortable sharing the name of that doctor that you traveled to Georgia to see, to get this life-changing SLT therapy for yourself? Yeah. So the name of the, the facility is uh, called the Genesis Center. And I'm going to have this question, but I doubt it. Is, is it covered by insurance? No. Are you comfortable sharing? Although, although I have heard of some people that have PPOs being able to get it covered. Like they submit themselves and they've gotten some kind of reimbursement. I unfortunately do not have a PPO. I have an HMO policy. So um, that was just not in the cards for me. You, are you comfortable sharing with us how much you had to spend out of pocket to see this facility and then get the SLT treatment that's, that really saved your life? Yeah, so the SOT treatment itself can range from $2,500 to $4,000, depending on the facility that you go to. I think you kind of, you know, the facilities that charge more you're really paying for their expertise. Like for me specifically, for my first SOT, it was $4,000 um, at the facility that I went to, but I was also paying for my doctor's expertise. I mean, he had been doing it for the cancer community for like eight plus years, and he had been doing it for the Lyme community the longest out of all of the centers that I had called. So I was really kind of paying for his expertise and, you know, I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying that SOT is like this magical cure because it's not. I think it's a great tool in getting rid of these infections, but I think there's a lot of other things that you need to do to support your immune system, to treat candida and check for mold. And, you know, there's so many other things. And that's what I was really paying for is I'm paying for this doctor to peel back these layers for me. Yes, he's offering this treatment and it's a great tool and that's why he's decided to do it. But, you know, there's so many other things that needed to be addressed and that's where, you know, the cost really came in and, um, you know, and then there's additional costs for the appointments, the supplements that he puts you on, medications, the testing, um, all of that. So, you so know, I know, I know it seems like, I know $4,000 seems like a lot of money to people, 
Um, but in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I probably spent more than that in the six months that I was seeing the other Lyme literate doctors. So to do this one treatment that could possibly get rid of this for you, you know, in one shebang, um, you know, it just, it made sense for me. And it wasn't just the SOT to your point. It's never just a kill protocol. You have to have supportive protocols as well and look for other things that will keep you sick. We hear all the time, things that keep people sick. You mentioned it, candida mold, heavy metals, right? And it sounds like that this Genesis Center, they looked at you as a person and then started giving you supplements to address those things while you were treating with them as well. Was that before the SOT? Did they do that first and then the SOT therapy? Yeah. So after my initial appointment, um, he had started me on a candida protocol and um, did some other things to really help me support my detox pathways and my immune system prior to doing the SOT. Do you think, and I'm just curious, do you think the SOT would have been as effective if you didn't address some of those persistent things in your body that were preventing you from detoxing and causing you to remain toxic? I mean, it may have been effective in a sense that it may have gotten rid of the Lyme, but maybe I wouldn't feel as good if I didn't treat those other things too. But I think, I think a good counter to that is it may have killed the Lyme where the Lyme didn't replicate, but when the Lyme bacteria dies, it creates an endotoxin and if your body can't purge it on endotoxin, you're going to stay sick, right? So that's sure. what it's all about. Sure. And if you're still sick, if you, you can't purge the endotoxin, you're not going to get better. And yeah. we know that a lot of these endotoxins, we, we referenced uh, this, this study that came out of Tulane University this week, where they're showing that even, even residual bacteria of Lyme disease after it's gone is actually more inflammatory than active Lyme bacteria they're starting to realize. So there's so many pieces here that people get therapies and go, I didn't get better. Well, I did that. Why didn't I get better? I did SOT. And I think you're pointing out a lot of important things that have to be considered and so much deeper than just SOT. So thank you for pointing that out, that there's a lot of other areas and layers to look at than just killing the Lyme bacteria as well. So uh, one thing, one thing that I did want to address with the SOT is, you know, I've heard some people say, you know, oh, I didn't herx with it, or yes, I did. And I think it's really different for everyone. Um, but for me personally, I, I'm very sensitive when it comes to treatments, you know, as, as we talked about with the antibiotics, I mean, I was having seizures, I was herxing so badly. So I'm very sensitive to things, but with the SOT itself, it was the most gentle thing that I had done. I mean, over the herbs and everything too, like the SOT was probably the most gentle treatment. Yes, I definitely had a flare in symptoms, especially between week like four and 10, but that that's usually a good sign that your immune system is kind of like waking up. I, I wasn't having like the severe neurological Herxheimer reactions, like what I was with the antibiotics. So I wonder, would that have been true? If again, you, you, you spent a little bit of extra money for the expertise of the Genesis center, if they didn't address your body first as a whole and your detox pathways and, and the mold and the candida, you possibly would have herxed because your body couldn't have been able to handle yeah. the bacterial die off as the Lyme stopped replicating. Right. So I wonder, was it the SOT was gentle or did your body better receive the therapy because you finally did what you needed to do first to prime right. your body for treatment, you know? Yeah, that's very possible. Very possible. So anything else, so you mentioned mold, you mentioned candida, um, anything else that you're, they found there that was getting in the way of your healing that they looked at before the SOT? Um, several species of mold, candida, uh, several different heavy metals. Um, that was pretty much it. 
and the, and the co-infections, you know. And do you recall any of the herbs they put you on and specifically what they did to help you support the mold, the candida, the heavy metals, any, any tinctures, any specific brands, anything like that you can share with our listeners? Yeah. So for the mold, they had put me on clorestramine, um, which is typically used to help lower cholesterol, I believe, but it can also act as a binder to toxins. Um, yeah, that stuff was awful. <laughs> it's hard, right? Yeah. It's, it's like a powder. And mine was orange flavored and you have to like mix it in with an applesauce or like something thick. Um, like you can't just pour it into water and drink it. Um, but yeah, it was not, not good. Um, and then they also put me on like a GI detox charcoal supplement. And then I was dry brushing, doing my sauna, doing the Epsom salt baths, drinking a lot of lemon water, all of the detox things. Um, and then for the heavy metals, I believe they had put me on DMSA, um, which helps you, I think it helps like bind and pass the metals. Um, so that one was okay. I handled that pretty well too. Um, for the candida, they had treated me with niastatin, like a compounded dose of niastatin, um, fluconazole or diflucan, um, and a supplement called Candid Arrest. Hmm. And then, you know, as I had mentioned, I was also doing the traditional Chinese medicine um, with a doctor of Oriental, Oriental medicine here locally. And, you know, the herbs that she had me on also, you know, they treat parasites, co-infections, but they, at the same time, they also really nourish your immune system and your gut. Um, and I was also doing acupuncture every other week with her as well. So it was really like a combined effort and I kind of had to figure out what things worked for me. Um, Do you recall any of the herbs you were on through the Chinese herbalist? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the ones that I was, was on were classical pearls. Brand of classical pearls. So, and you, you went to the Chinese herbalist and the Genesis center at the same time when you, when you left your mom letter doctor, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I was getting the SOT and being treated for certain things over here, but then my Chinese medicine doctor was kind of like supporting me throughout all of that, if that makes sense. It does. And, and how long ago was this, you know, time-wise for context? Um, I started all of this probably a year and a half ago. And how, how long did you go on with the training? Are you still with the Chinese herbalist? Um, I actually just recently stopped seeing her, um, mainly because, um, you know, the end of last year, you know, I've been treating for two years and I kind of hit this wall of medical burnout, which I think a lot of the times we hear that in regards to doctors, especially throughout the pandemic. Um, but I think it can happen to patients too, especially chronically ill patients where, I was just so sick of having to take 50 pills and supplements and herb, you know, herbs a day. And I was just so sick of going to doctor's appointments, so sick of going to get blood draws. Like I was just so done with it all, you know? And I really, again, I kind of hit this wall, like after I did with the antibiotics and I kind of had to take a step back and say, you know, is this still benefiting me? do I need to make another change in direction? Um, 
Cause I think, I don't think there's like one doctor meant for us. I think it can, it, it takes a team, like it takes a village of people to get you to full remission. Um, and although I love my Chinese medicine doctor so much, she's amazing. She's helped me so much throughout this journey. I just, you know, mentally, I had to take a step back from treating really. Um, but I understand what you're saying, Kelsey, but I also, I also look at it a little bit differently. I think your, your Lyme literate doctor was probably hurting you more than helping you because he yeah. wasn't, he wasn't treating you in the way you needed to be treated. Right. I think your Chinese herbalist and I think the, the Genesis center really helped you significantly. So I think when you left your, well, we know when you left your Lyme literate doctor, you were far worse. When you left yeah. your Chinese medical doctor, you were, I mean, in much better, better shape, right? I mean, talk yeah. about how, how much better you were at that point. Granted, you said you, you wanted to do something else because you felt like you plateaued and there was mm -hmm. more to go, but how far were you at that point in your healing journey? I mean, I would say probably at like 60 to 70%. And which is a huge, a huge improvement. I mean, when I, I was probably functioning at 10% when right. I went to and before we move on though from that, so the SOT was done in parallel. Did you do any additional follow-up rounds of SOT that were more targeted for other species of Borrelia that you found were being tricky? Yes. So um, typically after you get an SOT, you wait like six months to retest because that's really how long the molecules stay in your body is six months. So um, I think we had retested the Lyme at around eight months and I was now testing negative for Lyme. So then it was kind of time to move on to the next thing. Um, and we did some more testing. We felt that the next infection that was, um, you know, really affecting me was the Borrelia hermsi, which is a tick-borne relapsing fever. It's a bacteria of the tick-borne relapsing fever group. Um, so that was the next one we targeted. I did that one in June of 2020. No, June of 20. Yeah, I think June of 2020. Um, and then I just recently did another one this past November for Bartonella Hensley. Each time you did these SOT therapies, you were feeling better, right? I mean, it was pretty noticeable, the improvement in your health after each, after each session or each um, infusion. So with the Lyme SOT, it definitely, I didn't notice the difference until about eight months after. Cause like I said, you know, it works in your body for six months and then you should essentially be Lyme free. But, you know, I've heard things from other people. Some people feel better after four weeks. Some people feel better, um, you know, after a couple of months, but, you know, for me, I was like not seeing any improvement after the six months. And I actually got really discouraged. I'm like, Oh man, I'm one of those people that it didn't work for. I just wasted that money. But my doctor was like, well, hold on, you know, just, just hold out for a little bit. And the eight months hit and I was like, wow, like I'm starting to see the world a little bit more clear. I'm starting to have a little less pain. And, you know, it almost happens so gradually that it's hard to notice. Um, and I think, you know, what's really important is to journal because what really helped me was looking back on my journals or like my annoying Instagram rants where I go on and like vent on my Instagram stories, going back and looking back at that and seeing how far I've come, like turned into such a positive thing for me. Um, it helps you, it helps you identify where you are, right? Because yeah. you go, wow, I forgot about how bad I was at that right. point. So it puts it into perspective. Now, did you, 
so obviously the Lyme one took a little bit longer, but when you did the follow-ups, I think you did, you know, the, the tick-borne relapsing fever and some others. How did you feel after doing the subsequent SOTs for the other pathogens? So the jury is still out on those. Um, I actually, yeah, no, it was June of 2021 when I did the Borrelia Hermsy. <laughs> I'm like losing track of time, but I like just hit the six months for that. And we actually just retested it and I'm waiting to see the results. But, um, you know, I have noticed a little bit of improvement from that so far. Um, but like I said, it's, it's, I'm still kind of at like the six month, seven month mark. Um, and then the Bartonella one that I did was in November. So it's still really too soon to tell with those. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's one thing that I try to keep up with on my Instagram, especially is keeping people updated on how I'm feeling after those, because, I know a lot of people are very interested to hear. Yeah. And I think, I think you're, you know, I'm still thinking back on your topic of journaling and listening to your body and being able to, to read subtle signals that your body's giving you. Sometimes it's very difficult. And by journaling and document your daily experiences, it can be helpful to look back, see your progress and also identify a plateau to then make a decision to change and do something else. Like you noted with your Chinese medicine doctor. So when you realize that with your Chinese medicine doctor, that you plateaued under her care, again, she helped you a lot, but you plateaued. Did you just now go back and you're, you're, you're doing the SOT for the subsequent pathogens or are you doing something else in parallel as well right now? So right now I'm really just waiting on these SOTs to work um, that I've done so far. And um, I'm really just keeping things to a minimum. Um, you know, my goal for this year was really to take a step back, kind of stop a lot of the things that I was doing to kind of see where to get back to my baseline, to see where I was without all of these supportive things and kind of start from scratch, like get a whole bunch more testing done, see where I'm at and then find a new direction. So give us an idea as to your overall health now before Rich picks back over, because I, I just, I always like leading with this, this message. I mean, you were, you were bed bound, you were homebound, you were, near death, you were, you were stopping breathing. You had your mom come take care of you, your husband, you couldn't take care of yourself or your family. And here you are today. We've had you on this podcast for several, several hours, including the, you know, the pre-talk and you're extremely intelligent. You're extremely with it, cognitively speaking, and you've made a lot of progress. So there is hope even for people who are bedbound like you were. And I think it's a really important motivational observation to make to inspire people who are listening to not give up and keep trying to find something to help them get better because they can and will get better. But just give us a general idea of what you're doing today in your life that you never dreamed of doing when you were laying in your bed, just worrying about being able to wake up still breathing the next morning. So um, I've started driving again, which is a huge accomplishment because um, I didn't drive for a year and a half. So the past six months, I've started driving again, you know, just gradually, like I have my permit again, just kind of taking things slow. Um, and I really, I never thought that I'd be able to drive again with all my neurological issues. Um, and I've also recently started working with a personal trainer and going to the gym four times a week, which was, I can't believe I'm even saying that. Um, I mean, I remember there was a time where I couldn't even walk down to my mailbox to get my mail. Like, I'm just, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to be able to do, do those things. And, you know, I know a lot of people kind of like dread going to the gym and I remember being that person, um, but now I've just learned so much gratitude, you know, and I'm just so happy that I'm able to do that. And, you know, I'm able to spend more time with my kids and kind of run around with them. And, 
Um, although I've had to make some adjustments, like if we go places um, that require a lot of walking, I'll, you know, I might have to use a wheelchair and that's okay. But, you know, I've figured out ways to still live my life to the best of my ability. So Kelsey, talk to us about the importance of mindset and, and how your early training as a gymnast helped you to put yourself in a position where you had the mindset that you needed in order to be able to believe that these therapies would work to in fact allow them to work. Um, I mean, I know personally that mindset is a huge factor, I believe, and I know that there is scientific evidence that proves that our thoughts and our emotions affect our body on a cellular level. Um, so I think it is really important to kind of bring that into your day-to-day -day life, especially when you're fighting a chronic illness, but at the same time, you know, grieve, you have to grieve too. Um, I think there is such a thing as toxic positivity and it can become too much and it's impossible to be positive all the time when you're going through a lot of suffering. Um, so definitely grieve and have those moments of woe is me as well. I think it's important to feel those feelings and process those emotions in a healthy way to get to that point of gratitude and acceptance. Well, you have to grieve, right? And I mean, yeah. when you suffer a loss, you have to go through the grief cycle. And, you know, I think the real challenge with this toxic positivity is that it's just fake, right? Yeah. And you're not it's helping yourself. No one can be positive all the time. Right. It, it, it's just fake and it's not real and, and it's annoying, right? And, and, right. So, and, and anytime you're doing something fake and you're being less than authentic, you're, you're certainly not helping yourself on the healing journey. But you do have to get over, you have to get through the grief cycle. And that's not to say exactly. that mentally, you have to get through it and you have to create something new, right? When you get to a point where you can accept and you create something new, then you can have this growth mindset that's necessary for you to be successful, right? Because if you have a, if you have a self-limiting mindset, you can't heal. If you right. have a growth mindset, you can. And clearly you had a growth mindset and that's why you kept pivoting from one uh, treatment to another when you finally took control of your own health. And I think that's one of the really beautiful parts of your story is that when you were allowing other people to have control of your life and more importantly, your health, mm -hmm. you weren't healing. It wasn't until you had that break with your, your, your OBGYN not properly uh, treating you and your son almost dying, but for, you know, your, your grit and some wonderful doctors and nurses who treated you that you finally had, you had that breakthrough moment where you started to take control of your own health. You started doing your own research and that's what allowed you to now both from a mindset standpoint and from, and from a procedural standpoint to get on your healing journey. Yeah. And I think, you know, the grief is also a carousel. I think it constantly turns around and around. And at one point you may think you've reached acceptance, but then you may go back to the depression and the bargaining and the anger and that's okay. But as long as you're not getting stuck in those depression and the anger, you can't get stuck there. You have to be able to pull yourself out. And, you know, I've gone through months at a time being stuck in depression and it's awful. But eventually I do pull myself out of that. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> you know? Well, no, Kelsey, you know, again, uh, studying the grief cycle, the way we have here at the bootcamp, uh, you're again, the story is another perfect example of someone going through all of those stages where, you know, you had your element of denial, right? right. And then, and then you had your elements of anger and you talked about anger and how that was an element of grief. You, you then, you then got sad and ultimately stepped into some depressive moments 
Then you started to bargain. And I really love the bargaining element of your story where you were, you were bargaining and you were asking for help and you were asking the universe to help and your grandfather came to you. And that's when, you know, you, you got your, you got your, your SOT piece, which was a, a game changer for you. Um, and, but then you got to acceptance, right? And when you finally accepted this and you accepted where you were and who, you know, and what you were dealing with that allowed you to become this new creation, which is now the next step here in the story, which is the new Kelsey, right? The transfer formed Kelsey and the beauty of this story that Matt and I have loved so much. I can tell you, we both have really enjoyed, um, you know, the, the beauty of your story. So talk to us about what you learned about Kelsey and, and her gifts and, 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 um, and what God has created her to do at this, uh, at this stage of her life. Well, that's a loaded question, but <laughs> um, I've definitely realized my strength. I mean, it's, it's insane. The amount of trauma and things that I've gone through to still be standing here and saying like, there is hope. Um, you know, definitely, definitely have realized a lot of strength and it's honestly made me a better mother. I think it's made me a more patient mother. Um, and it's also instilled such empathy in my children too. Um, you know, that's one thing, especially with my daughter, you know, she's in school now and her teacher just recently said to me at her parent teacher conference, we're, she was like, we're so proud of how kind Emma is. I mean, she's just kind and empathetic to everyone. And I think a lot of that has to do with what she's watched me go through. And I, although I'm sure there have been moments that were traumatic for her where she's found me passed out and had to get on my phone to call daddy or, you know, whatever, um, but it's taught her, it's taught her how to, first of all, react in situations like that, react appropriately. Um, and it's also just taught her so much empathy and love and to know, you know, not judge anyone because you never know what someone is going through. Well, and clearly life is also really richer for you, right? I mean, you went from being yeah. a kid who was a gym rat who had no life other than going to the gym to then pivoting over to not wanting to go to the, to the gym to now having gratitude because you can go to a gym, appreciating yeah. all of these little things in life that you would have absolutely uh, taken for granted and you would have absolutely missed, right? And Yeah, I mean, it's really, when you go through something this traumatic, I mean, it, it really does come down to the little things. I remember you know, when I finally came off the doxycycline, just being grateful to sit out in the sun again. I mean, being like tears to my eyes, so happy to, that I could feel the sunlight on my skin again. You know, um, and it really comes down to those little things for sure. Because let's talk about where you are from the standpoint of now healing emotionally, right? Matt is taking you through this whole journey where you've, you've gone through this, uh, you know, very powerful journey of, of healing Kelsey physically. But Kelsey had a lot of trauma. I mean, your stomach was cut open while you were awake. You were screaming and crushing your husband's hand while you were awake. And that's just one of many traumatic events you've gone through. Um, you've, had, you've had everything stripped away from you to the point where your mother had to come and take care of your children. You feared that you would lose custody of your children. So you've had a great deal of trauma. You were gaslit worse than almost anyone we've ever heard by almost every <laughs> doctor you've ever treated with, right? I mean, so so... When does Kelsey begin to now treat this this element of, of, of her person? When 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 do you start focusing on on healing emotionally? Um, I think healing emotionally, especially when you're a parent, it's so hard to put yourself first. Um, but in situations like this, it's sometimes necessary. 
And I think the emotional healing really comes in phases um, with the grief. And that's still something that I'm working on actively. Um, I actually have plans to do um, some trauma therapy, some EDMR therapy um, in the future. But I think those things are kind of going to be a last step in my healing, um, whether it's the DNRS or the trauma therapy. Um, I think that's really going to be a last step once I get rid of all of these infections where I can fully say, you know, I'm healed mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, you know, just feel at peace, but it's been hard. I mean, I've gone through so much with friends and family as well. You just not understanding and a lot of people that have fallen out of my life. And it's really just beautiful to realize the people that truly matter. And in the end, family, family is who's going to be there. So let me encourage you to reconsider the place where you are. I mean, when, when Matt and I interviewed, um, Dorothy Leland, the vice president of LymeDisease.org, she shared with us that her daughter really didn't get through the final phase of healing uh, and, and didn't resolve all of her symptoms despite being physically healed, apparently, until she did go through the, the neural retraining. Yeah. Um, and part of what Matt and I have been you know, debating a lot about is at what stage in a journey you should be going through the neural retraining. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're falling, we're beginning to fall the, into, the, into the realm that it really is something that should start at the beginning of your journey. It really should be part of the detoxing process because if, you're, if your body's in fight or flight, and it has to be, I yeah. mean, it, there is just no way someone could go through what you've gone through and not being in a fight or flight loop, right? And that's very different than a grief loop, Kelsey, and we have to yeah. distinguish those loops and, and how in many cases your body is going to be symptomatic, even though you know, as you had discussed before, you had, you had an ovary removed and your doctors are saying, you can't feel pain in your ovary. It's not there anymore. Well, maybe, maybe neurologically you are, right? It's that, that, you know, maybe there are people who have had their legs removed and neurologically they're still suffering from pain because, because they, you know, they, they are still in that neurological loop. So that's something that, that I'm going to urge yeah, you I as, think as one of your new friends to reach yeah. I definitely, I definitely appreciate that. And I'm definitely going to take that into consideration. Um, but I think, you know, with the neural retraining, I think it may differ for everyone because I know, for sure. I know at a certain point, I mean, I was too sick. I couldn't even follow a storyline on a TV show. I was so cognitively damaged. Um, that I don't know if I could like follow a DNRS protocol unless I had someone maybe walking me through it. Um, but yeah, I think I, I agree. I think sooner rather than later, we'll probably. Be and, and there are a lot of tools and that's the kind of thing that we're going to start to profile, right? I mean, there are yeah. some, there are some folks that, uh, you know, there's, there's the, the vital plan, for example, which has actually been created by a, by a person who is, uh, who's, uh, healing from Lyme disease. We're going to be interviewing her soon. I, I understand she has a shorter and a more targeted program, but there are some folks uh, like Emily Levy, who we interviewed, who are now starting to look at, um, you know, some some other tools like um, uh, Combo and some of these uh, some of yeah. these other uh, some of these other um, tools that might uh, allow you to medicinally heal the way, you know, for example, people in Native American populations have been um, have been uh, you know healing with pahoti and, and other types of um, other types of. Well, that's what I've loved so much about the traditional Chinese medicine too, is because it's really like a mind, body, spirit healing. Um, 
you know, everything's connected through your chi flowing throughout your body and everything's connected through the meridians and each emotion is connected to an organ. And um, so that's what I've, I, I really loved about the Chinese medicine. I think really helped me work through a lot of the um, like mental aspects of this too. So now we have one more thing to ask you before we let you go. And you've been so generous with your time. And so this is such a beautiful and brilliant story. Um, if God forbid, uh, your husband uh, came in after taking your children to the gym and occupying them for so many hours while you were on this podcast with us. And uh, despite the snow, I don't know if you guys are getting snow in Maryland. We're getting a ton here on Long Island. Yeah, um, we are. But did, if, if God forbid your husband came in with a tick biting him, what would you do with him? And how would you support him so that he wouldn't have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey? Well, I have actually run into this incident with my husband because he works construction outside and deals with that kind of stuff. But first and foremost, you know, if you're working in an op occupation like that, 100% treat your clothes with permethrin and wear bug spray. Um, you know, you, you're especially high risk. Um, but if I found a tick on him, I would number one, take some tweezers, get down to the head of the tick, pull it out properly put it into a Ziploc bag, put the date on it, um, keep an eye on any symptoms. And I would send that tick off to be tested immediately. Um, and I would also pretty immediately call my Lyme literate doctor to get him on some kind of herbals or antibiotics, regardless of the test, just as a precautionary. Um, and I'd probably, I actually, I, I use this on my daughter once. I've made um, a French green clay and andrographis poultice to put on the site of the bite. Um, I think that's a bunner recommendation. It can help pull bacteria out. I don't know how true that is, but makes me feel better a little bit mentally. <laughs> um, so those are all the things that I would do if I found a tick on one of my family members. Kelsey Watkins, thank you for joining the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a serious honor. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Kelsey Watkins. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Kelsey, please visit our Instagram page at KDWTKNS. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.